electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now, on last call, stocks smashing records, but only an elite few have gone unscathed in this epic rally. We've got the names you're going to want to see. Forget about it. Jamie Dimon, lighting up the state, doing business in New York. You're going to hear from billionaire developer Don Peebles. A presidential duel at the border. Can the spiraling costs of the crisis be contained? White House hopeful Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins us with reaction. Shock disclosure. Shares of a major regional bank tanking right now. Well, the breaking developments, plus the Ozempic revolution, it is here. We'll take you inside how millions of Americans are handling the sky-high costs. And Dune, part two, to the rescue? Hollywood holding its breath for 2024's first blockbuster test. All that and more over the hour. So as always, belly up or buckle up, because last call is up right now. As always, good evening here. Good afternoon, all of you out west. I'm Brian Sullivan. Jam-packed hour for you. But first up on last call right now, happy leap day to the stock market. The Nasdaq scoring its first new closing high since November of 2021. The S&P 500 also closing at a record. And this is kind of, dare we say, random but interesting. According to our friends at Bespoke, it is the first positive leap day for the S&P 500 since all the way back in the year 2000. Huh. Today closed out the fourth straight months of gains for the major indexes. And as we have been covering a lot more lately, the small caps, the little guys, they're increasingly getting in on the rally. The Russell 2000 hitting a 52-week high, up five of the last six trading sessions. All good news for your money. But there is something else you kind of should be paying attention to. Small caps are getting a little bit top-heavy as well. Nowhere near as much as some other indexes. But take note. Just four stocks are about 3% of the Russell 2000. Those names, trader favorite, AI play, super microcomputer up 200 plus percent. MicroStrategy also soaring this year. We've talked about it. Elf Beauty, it's soaring. And the biggest is Viking Therapeutics. It's up 300% in the past year after an experimental weight loss drug showed promising initial results. Now, to be clear, 3% is not a lot of waiting. For reference, the MAG-7 stocks are about 29% of the S&P 500, but we thought it was something you kind of should be aware of if you're taking a dive into some of the small cap indexes or ETFs. So let's talk about this and what else is happening under the hood of the market with our all-star panel tonight. Katie Stockton, founder and managing partner of Fairlead Strategies and a CNBC contributor, and Carol Schleif, BMO's chief investment officer. Katie, 3% is not a lot, but I think the point is made. Do we need to worry at all about the, the, even the small caps becoming a little bit top heavy? You know, we've seen very concentrated outperformance in the small cap arena from growth stocks. So more than just super micro and Viking therapeutics, 
we have broad participation from growth more broadly. And that includes a lot of biotechnology stocks, a lot of technology stocks. And I actually see that as a risk on move, a risk on indication. It shows an appetite for these names that previously were out of favor. You could say that even about the Russell 2000 index as a small cap benchmark, it had been out of favor for some time. And now is showing some signs of life in relative strength terms when you compare it to the S&P 500. So I'm encouraged by the relative improvement. It's not really notable yet, but we've seen a nice uptick there. I would say it's actually far from looking overextended in relative terms. In absolute terms, when you break it out, growth versus value in the small cap arena, the growth yeah. stocks do look a little bit stretched. And some of the numbers for February are just outstanding in terms of percentage gains. But a pause to refresh, I think, would be really healthy and an opportunity to add exposure to all of these names that have broken out. Yeah, Carol, do we care if the S&P is 29% seven stocks or the Russell's 3% four stocks? Yeah, we we definitely care about that concentration, but I agree with the, the theory of being risk on the market in general is and looking at those small caps in particular, it is positive that you're seeing a broadening out of all the market indexes away from just that magnificent seven or 10 or whatever the top tier is and seeing more participate. And especially you've got a lot of fundamental rationale behind why small caps should participate in that broadening market should happen because you've got, if the Fed is indeed done raising rates, like they seem to have indicated a number of times that they are, then those more debt laden secondary and small cap stocks should have an opportunity to be able to really dial in what what their um, business plans are and what their lending arrangements are going to be and really profit from that. Yeah, Carol, where were you at, at BMO advising your clients to still make money? Is it just doing what we have been doing because it's been working, but everything works until it doesn't? <laughs> I think a big piece of it is, is we've had a balanced approach to risk. We've been overweight, small cap and, and mid cap actually for some time. We were in the soft landing camp starting last year. So assuming that you were going to get some broadening out in market averages and as the Fed as as the Fed stops raising rates and looks to cut rates, that benefits those kinds of companies. So having that balanced approach to risk means being picky where you're taking it. It's been nice to put ballast in portfolios with fixed income, but then you can tiptoe into some of those broader, potentially more volatile indices as well. Yeah, Katie, where are you advising your clients that they can make some money right now? Yeah, you know, as of Q4 last year, we were really fully risk on in terms of the equity market. Last year definitely was a year to have more of that ballast from fixed income, we agree. But this year, it's been all about equities. We've had outperformance that's really very pronounced from the major indices, maybe not as much yet from the small cap benchmarks, which are look, looking to stabilize here in relative terms. But that participation from the S&P 500 constituents has been there for sure. The breadth metrics are at new highs. So I'm not sure why people feel like the breadth is still what it was last year. It's actually quite different. Mm -hmm. We've seen pull, pullbacks in the mega caps, and that's actually been absorbed really very well by the S&P 500. So we're seeing these healthy rotations. We think that that can add to the sustainability of the up move. And for the S&P 500, 
we've seen a series of breakouts. The last breakout was to new all-time highs, of course, and we have an objective of about 52.20 in the intermediate term for a place where a, a corrective phase would be natural, and mm -hmm. we can even arrive at higher objectives from other breakouts. Either way, the market broadening out. A lot of people are making a lot of money, and we like that here on CNBC. Carol, Katie, thank you both very much. All right, inside the market, take a look at your stud and dud of the day. The big winner of the day was Spam. Hormel Foods posting its best day in more than 36 years. They raised their guidance. Seeing shoppers apparently are going nuts for planners. The big decliner, Excel Energy, falling 9%. A law firm said the electric utility could, could, be held liable for damages from the massive wildfire in Texas. By the way, folks, remember, wildfire risked utility stocks exactly what we highlighted in our recent mini documentary about California and Hawaii. Hopefully that puts some of you, some investors on notice because it's what crushed Excel today. All right, on deck, a shock announcement after hours has one big bank stock crashing right now. Plus, we talked the border, economy, energy, and maybe even Bitcoin with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. live. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, let's get down to tomorrow's news tonight. And this one is a big deal. New York Community Bank is tanking right now. The super regional bank, they've got over 400 branches, warning about internal weaknesses at the bank. They announced leadership changes. Investors don't like the news at all. That stock is down a lot. Leslie Picker joining us now with more. Leslie, what is happening again at NYCB? Yeah, I think the stock is really reacting to the news that there are material weaknesses in internal controls. The management change, that was probably somewhat expected because Sandro Dinello, that's the, uh, he was executive chairman. He's kind of credited uh, with turning around one of their subsidiary banks, uh, Flagstar, which is uh, one of the also recent acquisitions that they've made. Um, so that was kind of widely expected given that he recently took all questions from analysts on an earnings call seeking to assuage the street about some recent concerns related to their exposure to commercial real estate. Um, the stock, though, and investors were really surprised by these internal controls issues, and especially as they pertain to kind of how they undergo risk management um, how they have oversight over their loan book. All of that is concerning in a world where there's just so much skittishness surrounding this stock. 
Again, uh, Leslie, is this really just an NYCB issue? And again, I, I was trying to explain to people, it's, 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 the name is Community Bank. This is a massive bank with over $100 billion in assets. So it gets regulated differently than somebody under $100 billion. Is this still looking like an NYCB only thing or a bigger deal thing for the industry writ large? I would say among the sources I speak with, investors, analysts, executives, I would say about 90% of them say this is pretty idiosyncratic at this point in time. Uh, they say that, especially as the news comes to light today with an 8K saying there's some serious issues pertaining to the way that they're looking at their loan book, uh, you know, some internal control issues. That to me sounds very idiosyncratic, at least with, it, with regards to the news today. That said, the whole commercial real estate issue is one that a, a lot of community banks and regional banks have significant exposure to. Uh, bank, the banking system holds about half of that debt. And so when there are issues like interest rates for longer, you've got tenants that uh, aren't able to pay and landlords that are you know, feeling the brunt of this, uh, that starts to trickle down to the, to the banking system. Now, one thing that JP Morgan CEO mm -hmm. Jamie Dimon said earlier this week is unless you see a significant recession, these things will kind of just pop up and then they'll go kind of go back down and we'll just see these kind of like scattering of issues. It's not going to be the systemic contagion situation. That said, if there is a significant recession, the whole game could change. Leslie Picker on New York Community Bank. I have a feeling we'll see you tomorrow morning as well. Leslie, thank you very much. <laughs> All right, straight ahead, a border clash heating up with dueling visits by President Biden and former President Trump. Can the soaring cost of the crisis be contained? Presidential hopeful Robert F. Kennedy Jr. joins us live next. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. Ready to be a part of it? Go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Give up. Order now at Acura.com. All right, welcome back. In a rare instance of dueling press conferences, President Biden and former President Trump both visiting the southern border today. The 45th and 46th presidents were about 300 miles apart during their visit, one in Eagle Pass, Texas, the other in Brownsville, Texas. Both presidents doing what they do. They blamed each other for the crisis that has seen more than 8 million encounters in just three and a half years. For context, that is almost double the number of encounters of the entire previous decade combined. Here's President Biden earlier urging former President Trump to call for action on the bipartisan border security bill currently in Congress. You know and I know. It's the toughest, most efficient, most effective border security bill this country has ever seen. So instead of playing politics with the issue, why don't we just get together and get it done? Now, obviously, he's talking about a bill for the future, not for what has already occurred. They're completely separate issues. Now, the border crisis and immigration also presenting real-world economic implications. CNBC's Megan Casella joining us now with more on that topic. Megan. 
That's right, Brian. So the focus today for both Biden and Trump was on border enforcement. But what you didn't hear from either one of them was just how much immigration has contributed to slowing inflation, to higher growth, and to really helping the U.S. economy actually avoid a recession this year. So let's take a look at some of the numbers. The Congressional Budget Office has recently revised up its own projections to say that higher immigration, both legal and illegal, will be boosting economic growth by $7 trillion above what had previously been expected, over the next decade. And if you look at the trend line here, you can see what's been happening. So immigration really dropped off during the first Trump administration, then during the COVID pandemic, and that really corresponded with labor shortages and inflation. But since then, it's really been rising, and a full half of labor force growth over the past year has been from immigration, according to analysis from the Economic Policy Institute. So as it's increased again, price growth has slowed. Now, this is something that Jay Powell himself has highlighted, saying that the immigration rebound has been a big part of the rebalancing in the labor market over the past year. And one last point on this to make is that the U.S. economy, the labor market, still has 9 million job openings right now, many of which are in manufacturing and hospitality, those industries where, where immigrants tend to work the most often. And so while we are frequently hearing concerns that immigration is really taking American jobs, it's just worth noting that we still have a near record share of Americans working, but we can't fill the jobs that we have. Brian? I think, but you're talking about legal immigration, correct, Megan? That's legal and illegal immigration in those CB CBO estimates estimating that growth will be $7 trillion higher than what they had previously expected. Megan Casella, NDC. Megan, thank you very much. All right, joining us now once again to talk about the border, maybe a little energy, a little Bitcoin, is independent presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, Mr. Kennedy, good to chat with you again. We appreciate you coming on. You recently visited the southern border as well. I think much less of a scripted sort of staged thing as we probably saw today. Well, what's the reality at the border? It's actually surreal, Brian. Uh, it's, you know, I watched, I've been down there twice. The first time I spent almost three days down there. And I watched between 2 a.m. and 4 a.m. in the morning, 300 people just walk across the border and the border patrol is relegated to processing them and then bringing them to the Yuma airport, putting them on planes to any destination they want in the United States. And if they can't pay for the flight, the Border Patrol pays for it and then re gets reimbursement from FEMA. There's 8 million people that have crossed illegally, but, but it's, it's all you know, anointed by the, by the uh, federal policies right now. We've adopted this uh, this catch and release program rather than the catch and return program, mm -hmm. and we've abandoned and we've abandoned the Migrant Protection Act, which kept asylum seekers in Mexico while their asylum claims were being processed. Oh, it was it's infrastructure issues. There's a problem. There's problems with personnel, but the biggest problem is a policy problem that could be reversed by the Biden administration literally overnight. Talk, OK, talk to us more about this, because you are a lifelong Democrat. You're running as an independent. And that's why it's so important to get your view on this. OK, you also live in Southern California. So you see immigration, both legal and illegal, pretty much every day. Tell the and, and you probably heard my my sort of off the cuff reference coming into this piece, Robert, which is that the border bill, while it may be critically important for funding border operations going forward, tell our audience right now that it has nothing to do with what has happened, correct? It is a political sort of red herring. <laughs> yeah, you mean, what's, what's, I mean, I, listen, I've watched in New York City, 
I heard the report, you know, earlier on preceding my piece where um, I forget what the reporter was saying, but she was your financial reporter saying that the immigration has actually helped inflation in this country, but that ignores the actual direct impacts of this huge influx of Im immigrants on our, on our social service systems, on our social safety net, and on local economies. New York City is cutting police by 5%. They've cut the fire by 5%. They've cut sanitation and education by 5%. They have yeah. encampments for migrants on their playing field so that kids, you know, who could not play their sports during COVID now can't play their sports because there's migrants on the playing field. It's insane to try to make the argument that this is a good thing for our country. And by the way, we need to show compassion to immigrants and we need to have wider gates so that we can get illegal immigrants into this country to take those 9 million jobs that the manufacturers need. But the illegal immigration, there's no way that you can make an argument for it. It is yeah, all right. So, we so, have the Mexican drug cartels running America's immigration policy. Who can say that that's a good thing? Well, that, that's why bad. I think there's not. And I talk to the immigrants. The immigrants aren't, you know, the people who are coming over have been exploited, extorted, robbed, raped. They come over here. They're exploited by uns. They can't work legally they're they're exploited by unscrupulous employers who are paying six or eight dollars an hour and those employers contractors in new york city are competing against union shops so they're lowering the you know the the, uh, the, the returns to labor in our country they are reducing they are uh, lowering salaries in this country there's no you know there's no question about that yeah and that's why we're covering it on cnbc robert is that it's, it's an economic story as well. I don't have to believe us, believe you, believe me, whatever. You can believe the mayor of New York, the mayor of Chicago, the mayor of Denver and other cities. They're the ones that have said that as well. I want to turn to some other topics while I have you here because uh, energy. All right. You are pro pausing natural gas exports. You are pro banning fracking. I I'm a little surprised by that, given obviously given your your extensive and admirable environmental record. Because don't you worry that if we if we don't produce it, other countries like China, India, they're just going to use coal and burn nastier stuff. Well, my position on fracking is that fracking should have to internalize its own cause. I was in Demick, Pennsylvania this week. There's a, you have a whole town that's been poisoned. That's getting you know the people in that town. Literally every single person in that town needs to to have, buy bottled water, and the companies aren't helping them with that. And the roads are being destroyed by these fracking uh, trucks that weigh forty to ninety thousand pounds. These are little rural roads. It has absolutely devastated that community, and the water is horrendously poisoned. So what I say is. It's not an outright ban on it, but let's make them pay, internalize their costs. You know, mm. they're, they're getting subsidized by pollution. I'm against the, the export, I'm against the export of liquefied natural gas because it's bad for manufacturing in this country. The same reason the steel industry here, all of the smokestack industries are against exports of our frac gas. We have, we do not have the kind of, uh, uh, long-term frack gas resources that the industry originally projected. The, the, the actual reserves are much, much lower. The wells are going dry very, very quickly. So we need that frack gas here yeah. at home. 
to give our industries an advantage in the international marketplace. Let's manufacture things with that, you know, that we can then export. Not to export the raw gas is only enriching the the gas companies, and it's hurting everybody in America. But, but Robert, if, if I'm the economic or environmental minister or the president of Germany right now, and I'm listening to what you're saying, and I've covered this extensively, I've been over there many times, I've talked to them, I've been on the ground, they're freaking out because they need our gas. Yeah, they're freaking out because uh, because we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline and we deindustrialized Germany. And that's a whole different issue. I mean, what are we doing in Ukraine? Let's make peace over there. Let's get Russian gas back into Europe so that we can reindustrialize Germany, reindustrialize Europe. But let's keep our gas at home and use it for manufacturing and, and re, you know, reindustrialize America. Let's rebuild our industrial base at home. That's the best way to do it with cheap frack gas that we can outcompete the world. You, so Germany, you know, is making a choice to boycott Russian gas. And, well, you they're know, still, and, they're still and, getting, and, and Robert, they're still, they're still getting it via liquefied natural gas. We don't know who blew up the Nord Stream. I know a lot of people suspect the U.S., uh, and that's what you think as well. Yeah, of course, of course we, hey, we just, oh, of course we blew up the Nord Stream pipeline, but listen, for us to liquefy the natural gas and put it on and send it over to Europe is causing, I think it now costs like uh, 10 or $12 uh, per, per thousand. And for us to use it here, we can make it here and use that gas for a buck or two bucks per thousand cubic feet. And it gives our industry a huge advantage over the rest of the world. Why are we, why are we allowing these companies to do the unpatriotic thing of exporting that gas? Europe and giving those industries advantage over homegrown American industry. Let's keep it here. You know, for many years, for, since 1975, the export of crude oil in this from this country has been prohibited by law. And the reason we prohibited it is for that reason. We want to keep it here at home to give U.S. manufacturers an advantage in the international marketplace so we can build things, we can employ people, we can reindustrialize our economy, and this is the way that we need to do it. We should not be, these companies are imposing these enormous costs on local communities from which the gas is extracted. Like I saw, you know, there's people in Dimmick who have fire coming out of their faucets when they turn them on, and their children are poisoned. We've, we've declared these areas national sacrifice zones. Mm -hmm. That sacrifice should pay off with more jobs in this country, not just enriching the shareholders of these gas companies and, and then rebuilding industry in Europe. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, uh, the, the energy, you know, well, there's a huge energy conference in Houston in a couple of weeks, Robert. Maybe you should pop in. We'll be there at CNBC as well. Very quickly, I want to end on, on Bitcoin and kind of a more fun note, a lot of serious stuff going on. Bitcoin, you, you said you, you spoke at a conference, you bought it, you bought some of it for your kids last year. Uh, you more than doubled your money if you're still holding. Are you still holding? I mean, I'm, let's just have a little fun here to end the segment. Yeah, I am. I, yeah, I, I'm still holding. My kids are very, very happy about it. Yeah, where, what's Bitcoin's real role? There are members of Congress, both parties, I believe, that think it should be banned. Yeah, I mean, they, they want it banned because... 
they're being paid by BlackRock and Morgan and all the big bank, globalist banker, banking monopolies that are making money on inflation and making money on by the Fed printing money. And it, but American people, the American middle class, is getting rolled, and the off ramp from that, you know, from the the money printing machine is Bitcoin uh, because it is hard currency. And we need to make it transactionally available to the middle class. We need to make sure that people who want to have, protect themselves against inflation can have this, but also that they have transactional freedom. That the government mm -hmm. is not, you know, able now to, to, to digitalize our currencies and like they did in in Canada. Yeah. And when the truckers disobeyed, you know, when the truckers protested peacefully, their bank accounts were shut down. Well, you and they couldn't pay their mortgages. They couldn't pay for their children's education. The government could control their speech by controlling their transactional freedom. And, you know, transactional freedom is as important as yeah. freedom of speech. And you only get that from Bitcoin. We're not going to get that, you know, as long as the government controls our, our digitalized currency. You, you definitely made some Bitcoiners uh, happy. Uh, and I do want to say, I know the budget cuts in New York. They did reverse, thankfully, some of the cuts planned for the police department and the fire department, but still a cost of over a billion dollars in fiscal 2023 for New York City. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., really appreciate you coming on. Uh, always candid, and we appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Brian, thanks for having me. Always. Thank you very much. All right, coming up, harsh words from Jamie Dimon on the state of New York and where he'd rather do business. Reaction from billionaire developer Don Peebles next. A recent study of business ownership in the U.S. found only about 3% of businesses were black-owned. According to the Pew Research Center, the states with the highest number are Florida, California, and New York. Celebrating black heritage, I'm Sharon Epperson. Tonight's RBI is about a resilient group of stocks. We're not talking about the Magnificent Seven. We're talking about some stocks that have gone years without experiencing a 20% sell-off. The data coming from our friends at Ned Davis Research. Here are the top five stocks that have gone the longest with no 20% sell-off. Number five, insurance company Marsh McLennan. 989 days since it fell 20% or more, nearly three years. At number four and three, were public services and waste management. Both these companies get down and dirty. They're trash companies, but their stocks have just done well. Next up, Pepsi. Pepsi, 990 days without a 20% pullback. But the one stock outdoing them all, yeah, is Boring Old Travelers, another sort of insurance-related stock. Travelers edging out Pepsi by two whole days, 992 days with no 20% sell-offs. Those are your top five stocks, according to Ned Davis, without a 20% sell-off. It's about insurance, it's about trash, and it's about Frito-Lays. There you go. Random, but in. Meantime, J.P. Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon arguing New York City not doing enough to attract business to the area while Texas is. He told reporters in Houston, quote, in New York City, they elected, they don't want the business. They don't want, they don't let Amazon come in and build a whole new thing there. That's a direct quote. Citing that companies failed attempt to build a second headquarters in the city, coming on to commend Texas for its business-friendly environment and policies that he thinks encourage companies to expand in the area. Let's talk more about it with our friend, the People's Corporation CEO and founder, Don Peebles. Don, a uh, little Texas love 
from Jamie Dimon, uh, but he's kind of also going after New York City where he ba- lives and his company is based. What do you make of that? Well, look, I love Texas. My daughter actually was in college in Fort Worth and is encouraging us to do some business there. So we certainly look at Texas as a very business-friendly environment. I think that Jamie is frustrated, as many business people are, with what they see about New York City politics. Amazon was rejected by the former mayor, Bill de Blasio, and he was definitely anti-business, as was the city city council members and the uh, congresswoman, uh, um, who both all rejected Amazon. Uh, but I think that New York City and New York State want business. I think Governor Hochul and Eric Adams want business, but they got a lot of headwinds from the legislative branch, and they are leaning towards socialism. If you look at the New York City Council, it is much more of a democratic, socialistic environment. And so you've got this conflict between the executive branches and the legislative branches. You know, you just heard our interview with with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. I know, listen, a lot of people don't like a lot of the things that he says. Um, We're talking about New York City, which thankfully did reverse some of the planned budget cuts for police and, and fire. But to your point, Don, you've got the mayor kind of in in a spat slash fight with the city council itself over the migrant crisis and the cost. If you don't have those organizations, they can always have sort of the petty bickering. But if you have them kind of clearly at direct odds, that's that's going to be difficult to get anything done in New York where it's already notoriously difficult to get anything done. Yeah, I would agree. Look, I think the city council has been a real thorn in the mayor's side uh, with respect to a number of issues. I mean, the migrant issue, though, that's a presidential issue. President Biden needs to step up and address that. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. And Eric Adams clashed with the president um, early on in the migrant crisis. And the president and and his administration have not done much to help New York City. And they need to step in to do that. The mayor is in a very difficult position, declining revenues, um, increasing costs, billions being spent on migrants, and a city council unwilling to make any of the structural changes Mm -hmm. necessary to make New York solvent again. There was a bill, I'm sure you know about this, Don, and it wasn't one of yours, so we're going to bring it up. The Canada Pension Board Investment Fund uh, limiting its exposure to office buildings. It sold a 30% stake in Manhattan for for $1 recently, $1. Now, I understand that has debt, so it's not really a dollar. The buyers assume debt. Is this a bottom? (laughs) Because $1 sounds like it could be a bottom. Well, not really. I mean, I think, you know, we've talked about this before, Brian. The equity in most of the major office buildings in New York City is gone. And so it's worth less than a dollar because capital investments are going to be needed to be made to move these buildings forward. And so these pension funds and other investors are going to walk. And a dollar is a good deal to get out of it because they walked away from the equity. Where the challenge is going to be is that I think it's going to erode into the debt. Before, I thought that the banks would be safe, but I think that some of these values are going to drop 40, 50 percent, and that's going to eat into the debt side, and the banks are going to start having some losses, too. Is there anything that I know we've had a commercial real estate folks on as well, other than yourself, Don, have said the New York City needs to do tax abatements. They need to do something to help people transform this into housing. Yes, but also I think we are all in this together. So that means the federal government, the state and the local governments and businesses, we all need to have our workers come back to work and we need to mandate a return to work. And then the government has to incentivize reuses, 
of these yeah. obsolete buildings, which are many of, and that's our way out of this. And also Don, they've got to make the environment safe. Thank you, appreciate it. Sorry to cut you off, my man, we gotta leave it there. Time is up. We are back right after this. And welcome back to Last Call, everybody. Popular weight loss medications like Ozempic and Manjaro are revolutionizing the way society approaches weight loss. And in CNBC's new documentary, Big Shot, The Ozempic Revolution, a family facing lifelong battles with obesity and diabetes sees these GLP-1 medications as a light at the end of the tunnel. It's estimated up to 5 million Americans are taking them, a staggering figure considering the weekly injections need refrigeration and possibly a lifetime commitment. For Faith Ann and her parents, they were worth a shot. Where do you give yourself a shot? I give shot? myself the shot in my stomach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't even like it a lot. Do you hear the click? It's done. Wow. Can you just tell me what you're on and how long you've been on? I've been on Manjaro since May. Ozempic since July. Whatever she gives oh, me. Yeah. <laughs> he's been on, he's, no, he switches. He goes between Manjaro and Ozempic. They're all in a class of drugs called GLP-1 receptor agonists, which mimic naturally occurring hormones in the body. GLP stands for a glucagon-like peptide. And what it does is it helps the body regulate insulin and glucose or blood sugar, but it also helps the stomach feel full faster and longer. And it also affects appetite centers in the brain so that people have less of a drive to eat. And there are reports that it helps with what we've come to call food noise. And, of course, tune in to the full documentary tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. Joining us now to discuss is the host of Big Shot, CNBC's own Melissa Lee. Melissa, I mean, this is uh, this is a multi hundred billion dollar or more story, I would imagine. Um, more, according to some estimates, Brian. And it's just developing. I mean, you think about these two major players now with these two major drugs, and yet there are still 70 drugs, more than 70, according to some estimates, under development right now. Some of the drugs are variations of these GLP-1 drugs. Some of them are combination therapies where they're seeking a a weight loss treatment plus um, a compound which will allow the person to actually gain muscle mass instead of losing muscle mass, which is one of the major complaints for this class of drugs. Um, And then there's just thinking about different formulations of the drug. Novo Nordisk, for instance, opened a huge research campus in Lexington, Massachusetts. And right now, one of the big things that they're thinking about is developing a new molecule that will allow a a yearly injection instead of a weekly injection, almost like a vaccine. So we're just on the cusp of a a lot of innovation within this space. Yeah, you mentioned Novo, and I know I don't want to give too much away for the documentary. I know you speak with the CEO, you dive in. Eli Lilly, obviously, has now become the biggest pharmaceutical company in America because of this in part. But you just said there's 70 different drugs in development. So I've got to imagine, and not to take a page from Fast Money, by the way, Mel, but I've got to imagine there's a lot of companies, interesting ones, to watch. 
There are. And just this week, Brian, we saw Viking Therapeutics triple in value on the results of their trials, which show very, very good weight loss and very few adverse events that, that pretty much comparable um, to the Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk drugs. And so that sent the stock higher. There are a lot of these smaller biotech companies, and, and that's going to be the area to watch in terms of biotech M&A. A lot of the big pharma companies, as you know, they're looking for ways to extend and grow their pipelines. They've got a lot of cash on the balance sheet. And this could be an easy way, a, a small uh, acquisition like this. I mean, think about uh, the, the stock movement when a company says, we've just acquired a company that's got a weight loss drug in development. Um, it, it's sort of like the, the AI effect in tech land. And, it's, and they've done so much good because so many people struggle with obesity. It's a high cost economically, healthcare-wise as well. But I would imagine that you also explore, it's not perfect, right? You, you hear there's, there are stories about people that have some stomach issues from it. These, these are great drugs. Some people call them miracle drugs, but I would imagine they are not perfect drugs. They are not perfect. And, and you mentioned some of the well-known adverse uh, events right now that we know of. We don't have yet long, long-term data on these drugs at these high dosages. Also, we have to keep in mind that there are new markets where these drugs are being prescribed, most notably in children. The American Pediatric Association has recommended that parents of children who are obese uh, be given all options, which may include things like bariatric surgery, but also medication. And for this co only one year of trial data is available at this point. So there are a lot of unknowns, even amongst uh, people and patients that might just be starting to take the drug. Melissa Lee, host of Big Shot, the Ozempic Revolution. We'll look forward to it tonight, Mel. Thank you very much. Thank you. And folks, reminder, that does premiere tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Pacific, right here on CNBC. Don't want to miss that. Coming up, will the movie Dune Part 2 bring back the spice, get it, to a beaten down Hollywood? The Big Stakes, next. Welcome back. Let's talk movies. Now, so far, it's been a pretty lackluster start to the 2024 domestic box office. In fact, the box office is down 18% from this time last year, according to Comscore. But some analysts think the opening of Dune Part 2 tomorrow could turn things around. The sci-fi sequel from Warner Brothers projected to make between 65 and $80 million domestically all this weekend. I'll be a part of it. So will it end the box office drought, and can it really save, in some ways, Warner Brothers' discovery? Let's bring in Comscore senior media analyst Paul DeGarabedian on this. I'm a Dune dork. I completely admit it. Read all the books, saw the original with Sting and Kyle MacLachlan. I cannot wait. But am I representative of the population, Paul? How big is this going to be? Brian, I think you are. I think so many people are excited for this movie and the previous Dune film, not the 1984 Dune film, but the film that opened in late October of 2021, that was a huge film. That movie had a tremendous box office result, uh, earning over $41 million in its opening weekend, going on to make over $400 million worldwide. So I think this movie is really on track to do much better than that. I think this film could open with over $80 million at the domestic box office alone. So it could double that domestic opening of the Denis Villeneuve, the first installment mm -hmm. that came out just a few years ago. What does it mean for Warner Brothers Discovery? I hope I didn't overstate it in the intro. No, I think it's very important. I mean, these movies are huge. I mean, the budget on this film is massive. It's a very important high-profile film. 
The box office, as you said, is down about 18% uh, year to date, but that's all going to change this weekend. And remember, too, it's really Timothy Chalamet's year. Highest grossing film of the year so far is Wonka that opened last year. It's earned $81 million this year. So now Timothy Chalamet, again, is going to have another mm-hmm. big movie out there. But for Warner Brothers, it's big. I think this is important also for the industry as a whole. Uh, the, you know, momentum is key. And we're heading towards that summer movie season, Brian. And we really need to get this thing back on track at the air, back in the sales, so to speak, to get things moving along. Because people really yeah. do love going to the movie theater. Yeah. They need a reason to go. Dune 2, Dune Part 2 is a great reason. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bribe my son uh, because we're together this weekend alone. So we're going to go to a lot of movies. And he's obsessed with Godzilla. What's interesting about this Godzilla X Kong is that this is also Warner Brothers. It's also Legendary Pictures, which is Thomas Tull, who's been on this network many times. A great guy, just bought a big stake of the Steelers. Sounds like yeah. Legendary and Warner Brothers. If Godzilla and Dune 2 hit, that's going to be a big deal for them. That's a big partnership. That's a big deal with Legendary. And Warner's has a lot of big movies on the slate. There's a new Joker movie coming out towards the end of the year, Furiosa, which I cannot wait for. That looks amazing with Anya Taylor-Joy, a a Mad Max saga, so to speak, uh, almost a prequel. And that's good news for Warner's. I think they have a really great box office slate, at least on the theatrical box office side. Between Wonka and now Dune 2 and the movies yet to come, plus movies from other studios are going to bolster the box office in the month of March. So this is no small thing because it's been a rather slow going, except for Bob Marley and Mean Girls so far in 2024. Yeah, and not exactly the Barben, Oppen, Barbenheimer or whatever, which is Marley Mean Girls, but we'll take what we can get. Uh, Dune 2 and Godzilla X Kong soon. It's going to be big. Paul DeGarabedian of ComScore. Really appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Speaking of movies, do you know what happened 20 years ago today? This film made history at the Oscars. The ring is mine. No. No. My precious. Who can forget that iconic scene from Return? Of the King, the third Lord of the Rings movie took home 11 Academy Awards, hard to believe, 20 years ago. Wow. Only Ben-Hur and the Titanic have won as many. Lord of the Rings trilogy is one of the most successful franchises ever in total. The movies bank nearly $3 billion at the global box office. All right, everybody, thanks for watching Last Call as well. We'll see you tomorrow night live on a Friday. Shark Tank is next. That? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.